Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. Week after week, you stick with me. I appreciate it so much, as always. I'm very pleased to have Mark Sebastian Jordan with me. He's been part of the Ohio arts scene for over 30 years as a writer, actor, director, and playwright. His Malabar trilogy of historical dramas was featured in sellout performances for a decade at Malabar State Park. He's been featured on television programs such as Mystery at the Museum, House of the Unknown, and Ghost Hunters. He's an award-winning author who has worked as a freelance journalist for publications all over the world, included as part of his past work a satire on history textbooks called 1776 and All That. And he's written a book called Murder Ballads, American Crime Poems which would make a great future episode of Most Notorious. (laughs) But we've got him for another great story. The book he is here to discuss is called The Seely Rose Murders at Malabar Farm. Great to have you. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you've got a long personal history with the Seely Rose murder case. You've been interested in it for quite a while. Since I was 12, uh, I developed an interest in spooky or strange stories early on, and my mother recognized that. So when she saw an article in the newspaper in 1982 that talked about ghosts in Ohio State Parks, she pointed it out to me and said, "Eh, this is the kind of thing you might be interested in reading. And I took a look at the article, and the majority of the article was actually about Malabar Farm State Park. It's a state park in north-central Ohio. It's actually the estate of the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Louis Bromfield, who was very prominent in the early and mid-20th century. He became famous as a writer. He's actually remembered today as one of the grandfathers of the modern conservation movement. And his farm is now a state park. But it includes a number of farms that Bromfield bought up when he was creating Malabar. And one of those farms was the Rose 
family farmhouse, which is where a series of murders took place in 1896. A disturbed young woman poisoned her entire family. And the place has uh, been quite the source of uh, local legends and ghost stories and retellings of the, the murder stories ever since. So that really caught my attention. I had been to Malabar Farm already at that point in my life. And as I returned in the, in the future after that, I learned more about the case, uh, listened to the tour guides who told the story of Celie Rose and her murders. And it seemed very strange and fascinating to me. Years later, I came back to it again when I read a book called Haunted Ohio by Chris Woodyard, which retells Celie's story. And unlike some of the other references to the ghost stories and such that I had heard, the thing that uh, Chris Woodyard did, which was so great and was a huge influence on what I then proceeded to do, was she went back to some of the original newspaper stories from the event and reconstructed the story from those pieces of information instead of just secondhand accounts passed down through the years. And as soon as I read that, I was, well, what, maybe in my mid-20s when I read that book. As soon as I read that, I thought, wow, I could imagine bringing this story to life on a stage. And so I decided that I wanted to write a play about Celie Rose, uh, you know, kind of do a sort of docudrama, but, you know, as a theater piece. And so I started diving into research and I wrote the, the script and then sat on it for a few years and revised it some more. And eventually we ended up putting it on at Malabar Farm, uh, that and some other historical dramas, which I wrote. And we performed those for, for over a decade. But as time went along, I kept amassing more and more research and everyone kept saying along the way, oh, yeah, you've got to put this in a book someday. And I said, yep, 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 I'm going to do it. Uh, then I finally actually decided to really do it and not just say I was going to do it and arranged with the History Press to write this book. And the the timing was, was quite exquisite because I keep extremely busy with all the various projects I do uh, as an artist, speaker, music critic. Um, you know, one thing I didn't even have in my bio there within this last year, I've, I've had a great new feather in my cap with my uh, music writing activities. I just wrote my first program note for the Cleveland Orchestra uh, this year, which is, you know, one of the greatest ensembles in the world. Wow. So, you know, I've got well, a lot of things going on. Thank you. Uh, it worked out perfectly that the moment I had to write the Sealy Rose book, was right during the COVID pandemic. I suddenly had nothing to do for a period of a couple of months. And so that, that was my uh, main writing period for the book and was finally able to get this mass of research and, and put it all on the page. I'm glad that I took a very long time to amass this information and live with the story. You know, there are a lot of true crime books written that are very off the cuff uh, and just sort of do a glancing blow at the information. Well, I've lived with this story for a great many years. I've gotten to know a great deal about the people involved in the story. And uh, although it was not 
intentional on my part, ended up becoming involved in the story in some ways too, uh, which I retell in the book. But that gave me a perspective. So it's a book that's not just about a series of strange crimes that happened. It's a book about the community in which they happened and how it all went wrong. So if you don't mind, explain a little bit more about what this area of the world is like and how the Rose family came to settle there. The area we're talking about is the southeastern corner of Richland County, Ohio. This is north central Ohio. It's uh, a place that has always been a very busy borderlands between regions. Uh, The northwestern part of the county is the start of the flat rolling areas, you know, the cornfields and that part which Ohio is perhaps most well-known for. But starting in the southeast part of the county, you start getting into the central highlands of Ohio, which are actually one of the very first upwellings of the Appalachian Highlands. As a matter of fact, that's the the uh, mass that the glaciers ran into, you know, over 10,000 years ago, and it stalled them. You can actually look in Malabar Farm State Park and see the actual cliffs where the glaciers stopped. The Rose Farmhouse is just a few hundred feet away from from those cliffs. Um, So this is a border between the flatlands of Ohio and the hill country. Well, it's also a social border between the hill people and the farmers from further north. And... It was also the border for for many years between the encroaching white settlers and the Native Americans who lived in the area. The Rose family came up to Richland County in 1879 from southern Ohio. Uh, They came from the area of around Highland County and Pike County, Ohio, which is much deeper in Appalachia. And they came from families who... The, the bulk of the families in that part of Southern Ohio uh, are of a German background. They came through upstate New York and then lots of them moved down into Southern Ohio. So they're part of that general movement. But then the Roses quite abruptly leave that area and move to Richland County in 1879, where David Rose, the patriarch of the family, could operate a mill that was for sale. Now, we know that David had been a miller throughout his life, just like his father before him. He was married to uh, Rebecca Easter, and they had three children, Walter, Julia, and Celie, who is the one at the center of, of this story. But it's kind of interesting how how the the children were spaced out. Walter was born in 1855, not long after the parents married. Um, He was actually their second child. They did have one who died in, in the, you know, very soon after birth. Then they had Walter. They had Julia a year or so later. We don't know the exact date of, of her birth, but then there is a very long gap. Celie, doesn't come along until 1873, which is interesting. The big intervening thing which can be pointed out is the Civil War. David Rose had to go off and join 
the, the fight in the Civil War. He signed up with the Ohio 63rd Volunteer Infantry, but he specifically worked as a miller doing his trade uh, to help uh, provide food for the Army. But that doesn't mean that he didn't sometimes get wrapped up in the fighting as well. He suffered damage to his hearing from uh, being close to artillery fire during battles in the war. And like so many soldiers, he was plagued terribly by illness. He suffered from dysentery that gave him stomach issues the rest of his life. Um, His vision uh, was damaged by the war and his hearing was as well. So he returns home to his family at the end of the end of the war, but there are no more children forthcoming at that point. It's not until 1873 when Seeley shows up, which is an interesting and potentially troubling gap. And many people have have questioned that and have wondered if Seeley Rose was in fact David and Rebecca's child. Because what is possible by that point, by 1873, her sister Julia actually would have been getting to around the age where she could have had a baby. And you do see this sometimes when you're doing historical or genealogical research, uh, the, the issue of extremely old mothers that you see in census reports and things like that. Um, where you know someone is listed as a mother with a child when you actually wonder, okay, could she actually have had a child at that age? Well, Rebecca Rose is sort of borderline in that case. I mean, she probably still could have had a child. She was around the age of 40 when, uh, when Seely was born. But certainly today, there are plenty of 40-year-old women having children. In the mid-1800s, not so much. Um, you know, the, the change of life tended to start earlier for women in those years. So it's a valid question. And if, in fact, Julia was Celie's mother, then the question becomes, who was the father? Hmm. And there's no clear answer to that. We know that Julia got married about a year or so later. And she married a fellow by the name of William Long, and she had a child with William who was named John. But the very interesting thing that happens after that point is that Julia disappears from all records. And the rest of the Rose family suddenly moves to central Ohio, 150 miles away from where they had lived previously, to a place where, as far as I can tell, they knew no one no family, no friends. That's a very unusual move to make, especially back in the 1800s. That sounds to me more like they're moving away from something. And it may have something to do with the death of Julia. The only thing I've been able to prove by paperwork is that she did indeed die. And later on, William Long remarried, but he apparently had no interest in raising John Long, who was given given to relatives. So there's, there are many questions there. Some have, have wondered, back when Celie was born, could she actually have been the product of some something very taboo, like incest or possibly a rape of Julia by someone else? 
We simply don't know. We just know that suddenly and quite unexpectedly, this family whose children are almost adults suddenly has another young child that they have to deal with. We know that once Celie is starting to age a little bit, it became evident that she was lagging behind other children. They left the farm where they lived in Pike County in 1879. Uh, at that point, Seely was uh, six years old, and that's when they moved up to Richland County. They started her at the one-room school, which was just down the road from this house and mill that they bought in Richland County. And she kept going to that school somewhat sporadically, but she did keep going until she was 20 years old. At that point, the teacher came down and spoke with Mr. and Mrs. Rose and said, there's really not any point in you sending her to school any longer. Uh, one of her teachers later testified at her trial that Seely never got much above the mental level of a first grader. So she was probably what we would today diagnose as developmentally disabled, among other things that we'll get into, because she did lag behind the other children. And that certainly caused, caused difficulties with how she interacted with other kids. She had a pronounced preference for playing with younger children. Um, some of the crueler children in Pleasant Valley, which was the name of this area where they lived at, nicknamed her Silly Rose because of her flightiness and her tendency to nervously giggle. Uh, she wasn't known to be a terribly difficult child, although it was remarked in some sources that she was known to have a temper. And if she didn't want to do something, it was very difficult for anyone but her mother to get her to do those things. Interesting. Yeah. So at the time of these events, Seely was 23 years old and she had developed a deep interest in the opposite sex. And she became obsessed with a series of boys and young men. Mm -hmm. She became, as they called it, boy crazy. Uh, she was growing up and with adult hormones flowing through her body, trying to control them with a childlike mind uh, is a difficult situation. At first, she got crushes on some of the farmers who lived in the valley one of them she approached and declared her love for him, and he just outright laughed in her face. Uh, another one, Clem Herring, who is the neighbor who lived just up the road, decided to try and be a little more tactful, and he just completely ignored her, gave her the silent treatment. Uh, she responded by starting to steal his mail, stealing things out of his mailbox and stealing packages that were left for him just to try and get his attention, which got her in a lot of trouble. At that point, she decided to set her sights perhaps a little lower and developed an obsession with the boy who lived next door. His name was Guy Barry. He was 16 years old at the time this all happened. Uh, the Barry farmhouse lived just across the stream uh, where the mill was that uh, David Rose operated. And Guy was a popular young, young man, and he decided to try and be nice to Celie. And when she would come out and talk to him, he would 
be polite. He would have a conversation with her and then try to get back to what he was doing. And so he at least tried to be considerate to Celie, unlike some of some of the other people. Well, unfortunately, Celie had never gotten that kind of treatment from someone that she idolized. And so she took that to mean a whole lot more than what it actually did. She started thinking that he was, in fact, interested in her the way that she was interested in him. She started fantasizing that they would be getting married and having a house of their own and having lots of children. And she would be the maw of the house, which you know she very much saw in, in terms of the dynamics of her own house. She had two very strong-willed parents uh, with very different ways of behavior. David Rose was notorious for being irascible, temperamental fellow, you know, with uh, explosions of anger at times. But the real rock of the Rose family was Rebecca. You know, whatever David's storming around might be, in the end, he always deferred to Rebecca, who was the absolute final authority on everything. And then there was Walter as well, who, even by the point when this is happening, is still living at home. He's 39 years old, still living at home. And he was said to be an even worse temper than, than his father was. So you have a very you know, volatile group of people. And Celia imagined having a home of her own with a husband and children where she would be the rock, the absolute authority in the house. And she plugged Guy into this fantasy with no apparent interest on Guy's part. Well, the line between fantasy and what she thought was actually going to happen became very blurry for Celie. And before long, she's going around telling people that they're going to be getting married and then start up a, a home of their own. She starts saying this to anyone who listened to her, which makes Guy Barry the laughingstock of the valley. A lot of the other kids are teasing him about how Celie is obsessed with him. And he, you know, he tries to, to let her down gently and, you know, get her to get her to stop. And it doesn't really work. He finally goes to his father, George Barry, and says, if you don't get her to stop, I'm going to run away. I can't take this any longer. So George Barry, who already did not have a good relationship with the Rose family. We don't know the details of that. We just know there was already some tension between the families. Well, one day in June 1896, George Berry storms over to the mill where David Rose is working, and he tears into him and says, get your daughter under control. She's going around telling stories about my son getting married to her. You keep her away from my son, from both my sons, because one of my sons is never going to marry a girl like that. So, of course, David Rose was mortified. He called Celie into the mill and he yelled at her and told her in no uncertain terms she was to knock it off, to forget about Guy Barry, to stop standing at the window watching his every move, stop running out and talking to him every time he comes outside the house, leave him alone, forget about him, don't even bring his name up ever again. And she seemed to agree on one condition. She said, I'll do that, 
just don't tell Ma. You know, as much as her father exploded, the one she was really afraid of was her mother. And David said, fine, you behave. I won't say a thing. Well, of course, first thing he did was he went and he told Rebecca and she got it all over again from Rebecca. And Walter yelled at her as well. They told her she had to shape up and behave and stop being such a trouble. And she appeared at first to do that. She started helping out more around the house, behaving. She stopped mentioning Guy Barry. She stopped following him around and trying to talk to him. And so they thought that they had successfully dealt with the problem. And boy, they could not have been more wrong. Because instead of dealing with the problem, all they had done was that they had forced Celie into a state of brooding over her love for Guy Barry and how she could not get to him. And she had to find a way to get these problems out of her way so she could get to the man she loved. Well, the solution came about through a complete coincidence. Also unfolding early that year was the case of Romulus Cattell. He was a farmhand who in Northeast Ohio was living with a farm family and he wasn't a great worker and the, the family had had some, some trouble with him and his behavior. So they fired him. They set him up to move to another family. Well, Romulus Cattell confessed to coming back to that farm family and bludgeoning the parents and the new farmhand to death so that he could supposedly run off with the daughter of the family so they could elope and get married. Now, as a side note, that is a whole story that I went and researched in great detail. That will be another book at some point in, <laughs> in the future, because one of the most interesting things about that case is while Romy Cattell confessed to that crime, he almost certainly didn't commit it. But anyway, David and Rebecca read about this story in the local newspaper. And they sat at the breakfast table discussing it one day, and Celie listened to it all. She had never heard of this idea of a crime of passion where someone could do something like that, just kill people to get them out of the way so you could run off with your beloved. This was a revelation to her, and it was very exciting to her. So she took that piece of information and slowly over the next couple of weeks, she joined it together with another piece of information that she had, which was that over the years, her parents had constantly drilled into her, don't ever mess with the Rough on Rats brand rat poison that we keep out there in the mill. We keep that to poison rodents, spread out a little bit to kill potato bugs around the vegetable garden, things like that. But don't you ever mess with that. You just take a pinch of that stuff and it could kill a person. She knew that and she now knew about the idea of a crime of passion. And she put those two pieces of information together and she came up with a plan. We'll be back in a moment. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with factors, scrumptious, ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, 
and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week, pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal, dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com slash notorious50 and use code notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code notorious50 at factormeals.com slash notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony. And Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Back again. The morning of June 24th, 1896, she helped prepare breakfast. Some accounts of the story talk as if she prepared all of the breakfast. I'm not sure if that was true or even, you know, if she was capable of doing that much complex cooking. She could definitely do some. Uh, at the very least, she helped with breakfast that morning, which would have given her the opportunity to go out into the spring house. This is, of course, in the days before modern refrigeration. So to keep things cool, you had to have a little spring house where the spring coming out of the ground at groundwater temperature would keep everything cool so your perishables could be kept there. Well, that's where they kept the cottage cheese 
or as was known in the Valley those days, Schmier case. They kept that there, and she went out to fetch it. Well, while she was fetching that, she mixed a spoonful of rough-on-rats into the cottage cheese. This was a kind of rat poison that was arsenic-based, was very potent stuff. It was kind of a light gray in color because they'd put a little bit of lamp black in with the arsenic just to darken it so you wouldn't accidentally eat it. But of course, once you stirred that up in something like cottage cheese, it would largely disappear and not be evident. So she took the doctored cottage cheese, brought it into the kitchen, and made sure that everyone had some to eat for breakfast. Um, And once they ate, nothing happened immediately. Walter prepared to go off and pick some black raspberries that he heard, which had uh, just come ripe up Ferguson Way, which is the ridge that overlooks the farm. Uh, He made his living by doing a lot of odd jobs like that, you know, doing work for other farmers in the valley, uh, taking things around and selling, you know, we'd buy eggs from one farmer and sell them for a small profit to someone down the way who didn't have any chickens. So the berries, that was just uh, some of the work. He was going to go pick some berries that day. So he headed off. David headed over to the mill to uh, start on a new job that he had been preparing for. And Rebecca decided that she would start weaving a new rug. She helped support the family a little more by doing weaving. But before she got started at her loom, she noticed that she'd come down with a terrible thirst. So she said, Seely, fetch me a glass of water. And Seely did so. And as soon as Rebecca drank the water, it came back up. One of the classic features of a heavy metal poisoning is that it'll make the muscles in your stomach all clench up very violently. As it sets in and the effects begin to spread throughout your body, it gets to the point where every muscle in your body will basically cramp up. So you can imagine the pain of that. She collapsed to the floor and Celie was just amazed, standing there watching it all happen. And finally, Rebecca was able to tell her to go fetch David. She went out, got David from the mill. David came in, saw, saw how badly Rebecca was doing And he decided to hitch up the horses to his wagon and head over to Newville to pick up uh, the doctor. uh, He got over to Newville, got to the office of Dr. McCombs, but he found that he was getting really thirsty too. So as they came back, they stopped at a farm up on Ferguson Ridge and David got some water and the same thing happened to him. He collapsed, threw the water back up. And the doctor managed to get him back into the wagon, headed back down to the Rose farmhouse. As they did so, they apparently passed Walter, who had also passed out somewhere along the road. He may have been back in the field a little bit from the road, which may be why they didn't see him. Or they may not have seen him just because they were so occupied with, you know, trying to uh, get David back and uh, get him to a more comfortable resting place. The doctor did get him back there, got Seely to help him bring David into the house and set him down on a couch. Meanwhile, a neighbor had discovered Walter, runs in and tells the doctor where Walter is. The doctor rushes off to get him and bring him back. 
He finally gets these three violently ill people back to the house, gets them as comfortable as he can. And then he looks at Seeley. And Seeley is just standing there, staring at it all, fascinated. And he asks her if she's feeling okay. And she apparently gets the drift of his question and says, oh, no, I, I feel terrible, too. But, of course, she didn't. She wasn't collapsing. She wasn't throwing up. She wasn't having stomach convulsions like the others were. She was just standing there watching it in fascination. Well, Dr. McCombs was a young doctor, and he had been trained to look for signs of poisoning of this nature. And he was immediately suspicious of the situation. So when he went, when the situation was under control and some other doctors had shown up to help monitor the situation and neighbors had shown up to help, Dr. McCombs went back to Newville and he sent a telegram up to the county authorities in Mansfield, the county seat. He wired the county prosecutor, Augustus Douglas, and the county sheriff, James Bowles, and said, you might want to come down here. I think we have a poisoning situation. And he explained the people involved. The powers that be quickly wired him back saying, hmm, sounds like food poisoning. Let us know if anything really happens. That is a layer that kind of becomes another part of this book as well. The tension between the rural folk and the city authorities who come in to start deal with the case. At first, they didn't believe anything was going on at all. Just some you know country doctor overreacting to some people with the stomach flu. Well, within a day or so, David Rose died and died in pure agony from this poisoning. In a sense, he had it better than Walter because Walter hung on for a week, but that's a week of being unable to take in any food, unable to even take in any water, which meant that by the end of that week, his lips were turning black from dehydration. There is a stunning eyewitness account of Walter, the condition he was in, that was written by uh, one of the Shrack sisters who were neighbors of the Roses and published many years later. She talked about how she walked into into the house and was terrified to uh, to see Walter and you know his black lips, how they'd been trying to dab water on there and and relieve it a little bit. Well, he died about a week after the poisoning. At that point, Seely's mother had stabilized. Rebecca was still in pain, but she was begin beginning to be able to take in water and some soft food. And turns out it's because she didn't eat very much food that morning. Her, her stomach had been a little upset, so she only ate a little bit of the cottage cheese, whereas Walter had eaten a full bowl and David had been really hungry and ate two bowls full, which is probably why he was the first one to die and so quickly. Well, Rebecca started stabilizing. By this point, with two people having died, the authorities started to realize that there was, in fact, something going on. Uh, there was a lot of talk in the valley, uh, a lot of criticism of the lawmen and the prosecutor for not coming down and investigating. So they finally got the show on the road, came down, started interviewing everyone, 
Uh, the problem they ran into very quickly, though, was when they questioned Seely, they couldn't get any useful answers out of her at all. In fact, each time they asked her something, Seely would turn to her mother and look. Her mother would nod in encouragement. And then Seely would give a carefully worded answer that was obviously rehearsed. And then she'd look back at her mother and her mother would nod as if to say, okay, you did good. They realized that Rebecca had decided to try and shield Seely because she had, you know, she may have decided in her own mind that her daughter was not mentally together enough to be responsible for what she had done. And at this point, that's the last of her immediate family that she has left. So she's going to try to protect her daughter and try to coach her on what to say. Well, it was a very stiff and awkward performance. So they figured out what was going on, but they couldn't find any evidence. They searched the house up and down. They could not find any trace of any kind of poison. They thought at one point, perhaps she had used fly paper and you know, soaked out the water, uh, soaked it in water to leach the arsenic out of it and then use that to make the coffee, perhaps, or something like that. They had different theories, but they couldn't find any poison. They couldn't get Seely to confess anything. So they had nothing but a rather weak circumstantial case. Well, when you're talking about a poison, poisoning, that has to be tried as murder in the first degree, premeditated murder. Because if someone is placing poison, that suggests there's a plan. They've thought this through and then executed the plan that they made. That was clearly what Celie Rose had done, even though people would define her today as developmentally disabled. Um, one of the more horrifying elements of reading about her trial was how the medical experts all argued about what the proper term for Seely Rose, whether it was a moron or imbecile or idiot or pervert, various things like this. It's dreadful, some of the terms that they used to use in those days as yeah. they tried to figure out what, what was appropriate to, to describe her. But she was clever enough, cunning enough to be able to make a plan and then execute it. So they had to do this as a premeditated murder trial. And as it stood, they had a weak case. They had no hard evidence. This is before the age of forensics, mind you. So the, the only, in fact, the only scientific evidence that they had, the only hard evidence they had uh, was the Marsh test, which was a test that existed at that point, which proved that David and Walter had died from arsenic poisoning. So they knew that had happened. They just lacked any proof past that. And not knowing what else to do, they backed off. They let Seely stay with her mother, who was starting to stabilize and might survive after all. And Seely really took to the role of caretaker. She loved being her mother's nursemaid and having, you know, the, the neighbors say, okay, you're doing a good job, Seely, keep it up. She appreciated that. Now, some of the neighbors thought Seely was guilty of sin. One neighbor uh, had actually threatened to come lynch the girl. Other neighbors weren't so sure. They thought she was so she was so sweet and giggly. Seely Rose, she wasn't capable of murdering people. 
So the valley had become divided. Celie was left with her mother and was taking care of her, slowly nursing her back to health. So everyone just sort of went into a wait-and-see sort of posture. Well, this gave Celie the time to work on her cooking skills some. So one morning, George and Angeline Barry, Guy Barry's parents, hear a knock at the door. They open the door, and it's Celie, and she's holding a pie. She said, I made this pie for you, but Guy's not allowed to have any of this pie, all right? <laughs> and they said, oh, okay, thanks. So they took the pie from her, and as soon as she left, they took it to the back door of their house, and they threw it out. They weren't going to touch a pie that Celie Rose made for them, you know, let alone let, let their son eat any of, of that. So they just threw it out in the yard. Well, a few hours later, Angeline walked by the back door of the house and glanced out into the yard. And she was startled to see that the remains of the pie in the yard there had all these little peck marks in it. And as she looked around the yard, she saw all of the family's chickens lying dead around the yard. Oh. That, that's an amazing story because it wasn't documented in the original newspaper cases. That one was actually told to me by descendants of the Barry family who you know still still live in the area today. So that was an amazing piece of information to to hear about that. Yeah. Well, it turns out Seely also prepared uh, some food for Pastor Kramer from the Pleasant Valley Lutheran Church because he had been stopping by every week to check on. Rebecca and see how she was doing. He wasn't able to stop by the week, though, that Celie had actually baked a chicken for him. She was moving up to an ambitious level at this point. Uh, so he wasn't able to get any of his specially seasoned chicken because he had to tend to another sick parishioner in the area. So he didn't get his, his treat at that point. Well, somewhere... In, okay, we're getting into July of 1896 now, almost a full month after the initial poisoning. And Rebecca is getting to the point where she can eat um, like cornbread softened in buttermilk has become one of her favorites as she's starting to be able to take more food in. Well, one day, one of the doctors involved in the case comes to her and says, I think it's safe to say at this point that you're going to survive. Mrs. Rose, you, you will have some long-term effects from this, but you're, you're going to make it. Celie was standing there the whole time listening to the doctor tell her mother that she was going to survive. Later that evening, when Rebecca asked for some cornbread and buttermilk, Celie provided it to her. Only this time, Rebecca got violently ill very quickly. And she very quickly realized what Celie had done after hearing the doctor say that she was going to be okay. And as one of the neighbors came in to, to help after they discovered that Rebecca had, had taken a turn for the worse, uh, this neighbor overheard Rebecca saying to her daughter, if they find out you've done this, God help you, girl. She died later that night. The neighbor, Clem 
uh, Clem Herring and his mother, Phoebe, uh, had the presence of mind to take uh, a notepad and write down her last will and testament before she died. And at that point, the valley exploded in fury that the law was letting Seely Rose continue to kill people a month after the initial incident. And so they realized they really had to come up with some clever idea how to get it. Because again, they interviewed Seely and once again, she wouldn't, wouldn't give them any answers. She wouldn't confess. And so they had to come up with something else. What they finally came up with was something that they did with the help of a young woman named Tracy Davis. Tracy was a young woman who had gone to school with Celie and had always felt sorry for Celie and had kind of taken her under her wing and, uh, and protected her a bit. Well, she, she was fond of Celie and she was horrified to hear about this case. But when her father suggested that she might be one of the few people who could actually get Celie to talk, she agreed to do so. They contacted the prosecutor, Gus Douglas, offered their services, and they met with him. And Douglas had a suggestion for how to proceed. He wanted Tracy to go spend some time with Celie. Now, Celie had been taken in by the Oler family, who were one of the neighbors who lived down the road, who didn't believe that Celie could be guilty of the things she was accused of. So they took her in after everyone else was gone. And the prosecutor said, go spend some time with Celie at the Oler's. Stay a few days. And for the first day or so, just talk with her. You know, keep it, keep it light. Take walks with her, talk with her, get her relaxed. And eventually, once you have her relaxed, then tell her that you're in love with a young man, but your parents won't let you have anything to do with him. And then ask her for advice on what to do. And I'm sure he probably also said to her, by the way, if she offers you anything to eat, don't eat it. Right. Well, she put this plan into place. She took Celie for walks and chatted with her. One day they walked down and looked at the mill, which of course now is empty. And as they came back, they sat down on the steps of the Pleasant Valley Lutheran Church and just talked. And eventually, Teresa, uh, Tracy... Uh, sprang this story on on Celie and asked for advice. And Celie paused and looked at her for a very long time and said, I'm not sure if I should talk with you about that. But she had mentioned a few things earlier to Tracy that Tracy hadn't spilled the beans about. So she trusted her. So she finally does spill her guts. She says that she, in fact poisoned her family with the rough on rats, you know, mixing it in there. When her mother started to get better, she took the rest of the poison, which was two spoonfuls worth, and mixed it into the buttermilk that she served her mother. And incidentally, the police weren't able to find the rest of the rough on rats poison because Celie was clever enough to take it, pour it into a metal tin, and hide it in the yard. You know, they were searching the house. They were searching the mill. 
She put it in a place where they didn't think to look. She hid it outside, but it was in a weatherproof container. So she still had some left that she was able to use to poison her mother a second time. And she confessed all of this to, to Tracy and, you know, finally let, let the, let the story loose. Well, Tracy quickly excused herself after that, went to her father, and then they went to the prosecutor and said, okay, here's the story. Well, the problem was there's no witness to this. This is all hearsay. So the prosecutor says, okay, that's great. Now we need a witness. You need to get her to tell this story again. Only this time we need someone standing by listening. And so George Davis crawled into the loft on the Oler farm and sat there and listened the next time that his daughter and Celie Rose got together. And she got the story again out of Celie. And there was a witness who could who could back up what was actually being said. And so they sent out uh, a sheriff's deputy to arrest her and uh, take her to the Richland County Jail in Mansfield. This all happened in September or late August into September. So it uh, took took a while for all this to, to unfold. But they finally had the confession and they were able to arrest Seeley, and they announced that they were going to put her on trial for the death of her father, David Rose. The trial took place in October, and not surprisingly, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. She did display cunning in being able to make this plan and to evade the lawmen afterwards, but Many people testified to the fact that they had thought for a number of years that Celie Rose was not altogether with it mentally and didn't have a, a full understanding of what, what it was she was doing, of the, of the permanent situation that she was creating. Uh, she seemed to have a somewhat re- weak grip on the reality of the situation. You know, she kept assuming that after the trial was over, she'd be allowed to go back to the farm, back to the mill, which was not the case at all. She was sent off to the Lima State Hospital to uh, remain as, as a patient there. And another final break. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances, I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? (laughs) You get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. 
And I'm Katie, and we're the host of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser-known figures, for instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. We have returned once more. Uh, When she was in the courtroom, she'd cry in one moment and, and laugh a few seconds later. And she had a hard time focusing on what was going on Mm-hmm. unless she was being talked about. And when she heard herself being talked about, she'd kind of bury her face in, in a handkerchief. Yes. Mm-hmm. She, she could be very focused if the talk was about Guy Barry. If it was about her, she would become very bashful. And if the talk was of much of anything else, she would try to concentrate for a moment, but then she'd get easily distracted by something and her attention would wander off elsewhere. When she was in the jail, she loved the attention. You know, she had reporters coming to talk with her. Uh, The only known authenticated photo of Celie Rose, which is on the cover of the book, uh, actually came from uh, the newspaper coming and taking a picture of her while she was in in her cell in the Richland County Jail. So she loved the, uh, the attention that she got, but she repeatedly displayed a, a lack of understanding of the gravity of the situation, the seriousness of what her do- what she had done. She even seemed to have an incomplete grasp on the fact that her parents and Walter were completely gone because she, she talked about how it bothered her that sometimes at night her mother would talk to her and tell her that she'd done a very bad thing where they finally figured out she's saying that Rebecca is coming to her in her dreams and talking to her. So as far as she is concerned, her mom's still there in, in some, in some sense. So she did not have a good grasp on all of this, which makes sense within the context of her being developmentally disabled and having a, a very childish grasp on things. What's so fascinating about this case is that that is clearly not the only mental issue going on because 
you know, there, there are plenty of developmentally disabled people and it is exceedingly rare for one of them to also be a person of this level of violence. You know, what Seely Rose is, they didn't have the term in those days when the case took place. But when you look at what she did, she killed multiple people and attempted to kill others on multiple occasions. That is the textbook definition of a serial killer. So I think she was an extreme borderline personality at the same time that she was developmentally disabled. And that's one of the things that makes this case stand out. That's that's not a combination that you hear of very often. And it certainly had deadly consequences in this case because since she was so giggly and childish from being developmentally disabled, no one took her very seriously as a person, as a human being, and realized that she could build up such a fury that she would take lethal action to try to get what she wanted, which is what she did. Right, right. You wrote that the prosecutor was worried, right, that if she was found insane, she might get released. So his strategy was to try her only for the murder of her father. Correct. That was pretty much the only card that he could have up his sleeve. He knew from the moment this this case set into motion that it was bad news because although he was part of, you know, the county government and the city establishment, he was from Pleasant Valley originally. So although I don't know it for a fact, I would suspect he already knew the Rose family and knew who Seely Rose was. And he probably very quickly realized that he was getting set up for an almost impossible situation where he was going to have to prove premeditated murder, which is, you know, a sophisticated mental process against a person that almost everyone regarded as being mentally slow. That's a recipe for disaster for a a county prosecutor whose reelection depends on how well, how successfully he prosecutes notorious cases. So he saw that this was going to be a bad one. Um, He did bobble it uh, during the actual trial when both sides are calling, you know, witnesses, experts, and people who lived in the Valley to say what they thought of Seely Rose over the years. He had several people who were willing to testify. Yeah, they thought she was completely sane, maybe a little slow, but she's sane. She knows right from wrong. She knows she knew what she was doing. The defense was able to demolish him and probably demolished Gus Douglas's entire political career with one question. He got up. He actually called Gus Douglas to the stand. Uh, And this is the defense attorney, Louis Menger or it may have been James Reed. There were two defense attorneys. Uh, But uh, they called Gus Douglas to the stand, and they asked one question. They said, all of these people who have testified that they think Seely Rose is sane, are they all related to you? And he was under oath. He had to admit they were all people who were related to him. That made him look like a desperate idiot who couldn't get anyone else to take the prosecution side in the case. So that That was a bombshell that demolished the prosecution and virtually guaranteed that she would be found not guilty by reason of insanity. So Gus Douglas had seen his entire career as a politician destroyed by this case. 
he had only one card he could put up his sleeve, and that was to only put her on trial for the death of her father. She'd be sent off to the state asylum in Lima, Ohio, and if she were ever released, if she were declared sane, that would mean she would immediately have to go on trial for the death of Walter. And then if they went through that whole process again, then it would be the death of her mother. Then the attempted murder of George and Angeline Berry, the attempted murder of Pastor Kramer. Basically, what he had done was he had set up a mechanism to gum the legal works to keep her off the streets for as long as possible, hopefully her entire life. So he couldn't actually put her away for her crimes in prison, but he set up a mechanism to keep her in the asylum and out of trouble for as long as possible. Right, right. Seely actually became a staff favorite during her time in Lima, right? She did. That's one of the amazing things. She never gave them any any trouble at all. Once they had her in a controlled situation and taking care of her, they didn't have any trouble. They didn't really think that that she was insane or particularly needed to be in there. So she had privileges that most patients did not have. One of the things was that she was allowed to wear the locket that her mother had given her. It was a small locket that had little tin-type pictures inside it of David and Rebecca. We think it was probably an engagement locket because it doesn't show them in their wedding clothes exactly, but um, it appears to be from the mid-1850s from around the time David and Rebecca got married. And this was Celie's most prized possession. You know, when she did not have it, she kept asking about it. And once they finally decided that she was not actually all that dangerous, at least in the situation they had her, they let her have it back. They let her wear it on a leather string around her neck. When you think about that, that's an extraordinary privilege for a mental patient. She, in theory, could have strangled herself with that cord or used the cord to try and attack someone else, but she never did. All the years that she she wore that, she would get down on her knees beside her bed every night and pray in hopes of seeing her parents again. She would clutch that locket so fervently that she crushed in the cover with her thumb. And if you look at the locket today, because the locket does survive, you can actually see where it was crushed in, crushed shut by how fervently she held the locket as she prayed. Yeah. And it was pretty lucky that her locket survived, right? It's a a remarkable story. Um, There is a storyteller in Western Ohio by the name of Jim Bauscher. He collects stories and artifacts, and he is well-known. He's he's, uh, done talks all over the country. He has an incredible collection of things. Uh, To give you an idea about some of the things he has after he passes away, some of the things he has in his house are going to go directly to the Smithsonian Institution. It's an incredible collection, and people know him as a a collector of uh, historical stories, strange and unusual stories and artifacts. So he was giving a talk 
Um, well, let's see, this would have been in the early 2000s. And he was approached by someone after the talk. And they said, uh, Jim, I know you know the, the story of Seely Rose. I've heard you talk about that before. Well, my family was wondering if you would be interested in having this artifact. And he pulls out this locket and shows it to Jim. He said, this came into our family because our father used to work at the Lima State Hospital as a security guard. And he loved Seely Rose. You know, she was one, one of the favorites. She was so bubbly and smiling. They just loved her. And, you know, she was almost like the pet of the staff. And he remembered her fondly. Well, when she passed away, the staff kept a few of her personal effects as mementos. They actually had a little display case next to the nurse's station where they, they had some of these patient effects displayed. And, you know, then they could share stories about them. Well, at some point later on in, I don't know, the 1950s or 60s, a new administration came in and a new administrator to the state hospital system. And when they came through and did their inspection of the place, they saw this case of patient mementos and they said, no, that's got to go. When we come back here tomorrow, that is gone. We don't care where they go. It's just going out of here. That's unprofessional, should not be on display like that. So what they did is anyone who had a particular memory of one of those patients took the, the personal effect. Well, this guard remembered Seely Rose from when he had started at the asylum years earlier, and he took it and kept it. Years later, he passed away, and so the family inherited it. The family was, frankly, creeped out to have this <laughs> artifact that belonged to a known serial killer in the house. They were, they were very uncomfortable having having this in their house at all. And that's when they came up with the idea of giving it to Jim Bowsher, this fellow who collects stories and artifacts. And so Jim accepted it. Uh, and Jim's a great friend of, of mine. And uh, he confirmed this story for me. He did not want to release the family's name to the public for obvious reasons. Um, but that is all documented in his sources. Uh, I met Jim when he contacted me in 2000, would have been late 2003, after we had first performed uh, the play. He had heard that someone had written a play about Seely Rose and, and put it on at Malabar Farm State Park. Uh, so he hunted me down, called me up, and, um, and talked with me. And he also wanted to tell me about the locket and ask my thoughts on it and, and such. And I guess I, I passed inspection from this uh, uh, master storyteller and historian because that first phone call we had lasted something like three hours. And uh, we've, we've continued going on like that ever since. Well, I soon got to visit with Jim and see the locket. Seely had crushed it shut over the years. And all the years that the guard had it, he didn't try to open it. He you know, was kind of superstitious about that. So it had become corroded shut. So this locket had not been opened in something like 70 years, maybe longer. And so 
Jim and his brother, Walter, cleaned up the locket, finally opened it up for the first time in a great many years. And that's when we first saw the pictures of David and Rebecca. There are no other known photos of Celie's Celie's parents. Um, And that just made it all the more vivid to actually see the faces of the people uh, involved in this story. And also interesting to kind of corroborate what we know of the personality of the family, you can see in Rebecca's eyes the the dominant personality that she was the rock of the family. And Celie Rose, she died in her early 60s, right? Yeah, she was uh, passed away in the Lima State Hospital in 1934. Um, So she was actually 61 at the time. Uh, died of bronchopneumonia. So when you you do internet searches on on Celie Rose now, she's become kind of a ghost story. And you yourself have done a lot of historical research, of course, to get the case correct. But it's evolved or devolved over time, I, I guess, depending on your perspective, mm-hmm. into you know mythology, almost lore, right with an emphasis on the paranormal. Yes, it's it's very much has become part of the folklore of North Central Ohio. I know for a fact that they still tell the Sealy Rose story around uh around the fireplaces at uh, the summer camps in in the area. It it has uh it, it has just completely soaked into into the fabric of the area. So it's it's an absolute honor to be able to work with such an extraordinary and resonant story. I mean, after all, let's face it, there are millions of murders throughout history, and the sad truth is that most of them aren't memorable. But this one is extremely memorable because it hits so many resonance points, you know, family dynamics, unrequited love, and mysterious mental conditions. There's just a ton of things about this case that makes it so haunting and unforgettable. Absolutely. I was wondering, uh, you, you mentioned earlier about your your connection to the case as a young man, uh, writing a play about Seely Rose. And as, as you learned more about the crime, did you go in and, and fine-tune your, your play? Did it change over time as you became more aware of the history? It did. It's been a while now since we did it. If we were to ever do the, the play again... Uh, then there are still there are some passages in it that I would like to to tweak yet again, because as time goes by, you get more information. The picture clarifies slightly. In a case this complex that happened such a long time ago, you're never going to have all the details. You you have to uh, kind of fill in the gaps in some places. But we have a lot more information now than we did when I first wrote the play. Uh, some of it came to me directly from family members, like the Barry family have been an enormous help in fleshing out the character of Guy Barry, and they gave me the whole story of the poison pie that that Seeley made uh, for uh, for George and Angeline as well, which wasn't documented elsewhere. Uh, I had the extraordinary privilege of being able to sit down. Uh, with James Reed, the grandson 
of one of Seeley's prosecuting attorneys, her lead prosecuting attorney. His name was also James Reed. Well, uh, they, the Reeds tend to live a very long time. So his grandson is still very much alive. And he invited me to sit down and he showed me his grandfather's handwritten notes for his closing argument for the trial, which was wonderful to have because uh, not much survives from the original trial. All I had were this closing argument that Jim Reed showed me and reconstructions of what was said in the trial based on uh, newspaper accounts of the trial. Uh, the sad truth is that uh, Richland County, like so many counties across the United States, have have not been good about keeping all of the records that they really should. Many of the courthouse records uh, for Richland County were just dumped after a number of years and destroyed. They figured no one would be interested in them later. Well, they were wrong about that. And it, it's sad to see old records lost like that. Yeah. So for anyone who might want to visit the places important to this case now, where would you recommend they go? What's still left? The farmhouse where this all took place is still standing. It has not been restored. Um, I I would love to see that restored someday uh, to its its original condition. That's one of the reasons why when I did this book, I actually insisted that there be an appendix where I include the entire list of items that were sold at the estate sale. Uh, when the, the, the house was, was auctioned off after the roses were gone because I wanted it to be on record. Here, we, we don't have the house in its original condition. It's been very much redone since then. You know, in the 1970s, some god-awful shag carpeting was put down in, in some of the rooms. <laughs> but uh, it could be restored because we have a list of every single object that was in that house. So we could figure out how a lot of this stuff originally was and put it back in place. Um, it would just, there would have to be the money to do it and the political will to do it at some point. Uh, but the house itself can be seen. Uh, the big barn at Malabar Farm State Park actually contains some of the original beams from the mill that Seeley's father operated. So you can actually walk into that and walk up and touch some of the original beams from that structure. Uh, the one-room schoolhouse that Seeley went to is now a private residence, but it is right there in the valley. Uh, David, Rebecca, and Walter Rose are buried in the Pleasant Valley Church Cemetery just up the road from the main entrance into the park. Uh, so you can see that as well. So there, there are a lot of uh, the original places involved in, in the story that you can actually visit, go to. Uh, they do tours at Malabar Farm that will uh, take you to the farmhouse and tell you some of the story as well. Very cool. So you have a strong presence on Facebook, a Facebook page. Yes, uh, it's Mark Sebastian Jordan Ryder, and uh, you can follow what I'm up to on there, new stories that I'm working on. I write a weekly local history column about Knox County, which is the next county south of uh, Richland County, and delve into the history there. Uh, right now I'm preparing a, 
a large series on yet another infamous murder case. So I've got some more books to write in the near future. <laughs> uh, well, please, we'd, we'd love to have you back when you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> I would be delighted to be back. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. You are welcome. And, and thank you per, for providing a platform for serious examinations of some of these cases that still resonate over the years. These, you know, it isn't just titillation. This stuff actually matters. This is stuff that we as humans need to figure out. And shows like this actually help us have a forum for doing that. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Much appreciated. Again, I have been speaking to Mark Sebastian Jordan. He is the author of The Seely Rose Murders at Malabar Farm. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.